Welcome to this episode of the Business of Practice podcast, where we focus on the financial and human sides of equine veterinary medicine. In this episode, Mike Powell, DVM MBA, is going to talk to us about attracting and retaining veterinarians. I'm your host, Kim Brown, publisher of Equimanagement. The Business of Practice podcast is brought to you in 2022 by Care Credit. Mike Pownell, who is a DVM and an MBA, as I had mentioned, is a partner in McKee Pownell Equine Services in Canada and a partner in Oculus Insights. That company is focused on helping veterinarians and other members of the animal health care industry improve their businesses. Thank you, Dr. Pownell, for joining us today about attracting and retaining veterinarians. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's always a pleasure. Do you ever remember, Dr. Pownell, having such a hard time finding and keeping associates in equine practice? Oh, boy. Um, I was talking to somebody the other day and they talked about, oh, yeah, 2022 is the the year of the shrinking vet practice in veterinary <laughs> medicine. I'm like, oh, it's not just me. Yeah, it has been bizarre. I mean, and especially I remember in 2010 uh, presenting at a conference and looking at the AP statistics and there was like maybe 10 jobs for associates and there was a glut it was and and 10 years later it's reversed i remember reading an avma um report it was on the demographics of the profession and the, the vet pet owning profession and they say by the end of the decade um beginning of the 2020s there will be an absolute shortage of vets i'm thinking of the time that's ridiculous we're we're drowning in them right now and boy demographics doesn't lie it just uh, yeah. it gave us such insight in that. Yeah, it's true. And it's, and unfortunately, it's not going away anytime soon, unfortunately, unless something devastating happens to the profession and there is a COVID-like thing for horses that decimates it. We're, I mean, or pets, I mean, we're in a position for a while because it, they don't make vets or great support staff overnight. So... Right. I think we really, as veterinary practices, have to focus on what can we do to retain our staff? You know, I think um, when we look at, you know, everybody's like, I got to find new staff. I got to find new staff. It's almost like we have a preventable disease in that if we can take care of the staff we have, the odds of them leaving are reduced greatly and the need to find new ones is reduced greatly. So the more we can take care of what we have, the less headache we're going to have finding new ones. It's pretty, I was going to say, it's really simple, but it's not because you're dealing with people and people are complex. And um, as practice owners, managers, we're having to change the way we care for our people because, you know, we didn't have to. Uh, we really didn't have to. And what this time is exposing to a lot of practices is the weakness in how they cared for people. And I think it's sort of like, oh, we got to do things differently now because what got us here is not going to move us forward. Well, that's true. And let's talk a little bit. Let's let's walk backwards in this whole thing. There are fewer People going into vet school. I mean, just all veterinarians, there's a yep. shortage. It's not just equine vets. Yep. So there's fewer vet graduates coming out of vet school. And there's of that, there's fewer entering equine practice. Why is that? 
You know, I just before I answer that, I just want to say I just want people to realize this is not a North American problem either. Like I talk to veterinarians in Europe, I talk to veterinarians in Australia. This is an everywhere problem. It's not just us. So, um, and we're all sort of fighting over the same scant resources of, of, you know, if you want to look at new vets and what have you. So, but why is it, uh, you know, I, uh, Amy Grice, you know, who does a lot of writing for Equimanagement has done a great survey and it's just like lifestyle compensation after hour work, uh, toxic work environment. It's, um, yeah, I mean, those are some major things. And so I think the profession ultimately is going to have to make some significant structural changes uh, to attract this new generation. And I know when my wife and I were starting our practice, uh, she graduated 2000, I graduated 2001. I remember at the time going, we were both thinking that we need to develop a practice right off the bat that we could, let's try to grow as quick as we can. Because the more vets we have, the more we can share on call and the more we're going to attract vets. Because even then, um, regardless of gender or age, nobody wanted to work the crazy equine vet hours of on call, one person, just this road warrior. That just was a thing. Already it was a thing of the past 22 years ago. And so, yeah, and it's, and we're living it now. So I think, you know, why is it so attract, you know, hard? And I think there's a lot of reasons. I think depending on what vet school you go to, there are a lot of clinicians, professors who are really down on equine practice. And so you'll have that enthusiastic, uh, horse crazy young person saying, I want to be an equine vet. And that grizzled old clinician who probably doesn't have any knowledge of what equine practice is like now says, oh, you don't want to do that. It's horrible. You're going to work crazy. The clients are nuts. And it's like, no, I had it. I mean, and I, and I came into vet school as a senior student, as a farrier, like I knew the business and I had professors tell me that, which is really a disservice to the profession. At the same time, um, I think we have to look ourselves in the mirror as a profession and go, have we done the best for compensation? Have we done the best for work-life balance? Do we have a great work environment? And I think, sadly, we have failed. That being said, I think there are a lot of practices that are very progressive who have recognized this even before the pandemic that knows that said, you know, we got to do things differently uh, and they're growing in numbers. And I'm I am optimistic. I'm really optimistic in a couple of years, the tide will turn and people are going to realize, you know what? Equine practice is a viable alternative. There are some great practices. You've got to, you know, we, you know, sort through it, but they're there. And I'm hoping that the rising tide of these, oh, I have to say employee-friendly, um, more progressive thinking practices is going to make all of us go that way. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to regress just a little bit. I know we're sure. talking about veterinarians, but you also mentioned this, and this is really critical, support staff. Yep. They're they're in short supply right now too, and they're absolutely they're in demand everywhere because we know those folks who usually work well at a vet practice are hard workers. Yep, there you can't have a vet practice without your support staff. But yet, I think we we have taken them for granted. We haven't appreciated them. We thought they were just a commodity. If I well, one leaves, I can just get another one on. And I think that doesn't work anymore. I mean, there's a lot of discussion of what is the new minimum wage. I'm telling you, the new minimum wage is whatever Amazon is paying at their local warehouse. And if it's $18, $20 an hour with medical and other benefits, 
regardless of what the state or the province or the country says is a minimum wage, that's it. That's who you're competing against. Um, you know, one of the things we're seeing out of the pandemic, again, back to demog demography, demographics is, you know, um, there is a large cohort of people who have left work, just purely left work, like early retirement. We lost a significant number of women from the workforce and they haven't entirely come back. And so, yeah, they're in other industries, but what happens then, those are openings, and then that person who was working hard in a vet practice and maybe was being paid at the time okay wages, but maybe substandard wages now, is like, why am I doing this? I could go back to school, get a you know certificate, or I can go work at Amazon or whatever and make more money. Um, yeah, the work's gonna be super hard at, yeah, there, but, we're competing against everybody, not just vet practices. So we, we need to be competitive and we need to have work environments that are similar to larger companies. Cause. Yeah. I mean, here, uh, the vet practice, my daughter works for as a tech, they're having a hard time because Amazon, the, the local Walmart pays as much as they're paying. And yeah. that's, you know, that's a good working wage. But, you know, Walmart has got that huge corporation behind them. And they said, well, if this is what it takes to get stock on the shelves. Yep. Uh, you know, and so what what that means is for the short term, maybe the long term, I'm hoping the short term. And this is sort of heresy to say is, but I think veterinary practice owners have got to realize that as a business, as a business owner, they're going to make less money. Because what's going to change is, you know, let's say you got a certain percentage of profitability, that's going to get clawed back because we are being forced to have to pay more for our support staff. Um, so how do we counteract that? Well, the easy answer, everybody is like, well, we'll just raise prices. Well, there's a ceiling. You're like this is you know, inflationary times. Everything's expensive. You know, we are basically dealing to a large degree with people's disposable income. And when you're involved in racing and whatever, then it's more of a business, um, money earning business, but for the, by and large, it's disposable discretionary income. So if that starts to get pinched off less money for horses. Um, and we're having to pay more for staff. So there's, I think there's a ceiling on price. You know, I think there's ways to be more creative and, and maybe adjust its other prices. Um, so that's the, and I think until we can get technology that can start to, I want to say automate, because I think the value of uh, equine veterinary medicine is the relationship people have, but there could be a lot of things that we do simpler and maybe down the road, we're not having to use as many veterinarians or support staff in a practice because there are things that can be automated and that, you know, or, and so, you know, an example would be, um, I think practice management softwares could sort of ease the process a little bit. I think telemedicine, I know a lot of equine vets are like, oh, that's a hard hill to climb. We've been giving away our knowledge forever. How do we convince people otherwise? I think we're going to have to deal with it. Because that's a way that you can attract people knowing that, hey, one, one day a week, one day every two weeks, I can sit at home in my pajamas or sweatpants and answer calls and be a productive veterinarian. Yeah. And when you had talked about, you know, we, we talked about you're competing with everyone. But for veterinarians, a lot of times they're losing graduates from vet school or even yep. current practitioners to small animals. So what's yep. going on there? You know, Boy, and I, 
I have some insight to that because I, you know, honestly, we lost uh, two vets last year to small animal. Some of it is lifestyle. I mean, also when you're hiring a veterinarian, you're also often with a spouse and they're like, you know, I'm tired of you working these crazy hours or they're moving away uh, because of, of better job opportunities. And so it's easier to say, well, I'm just going to go into small animal. There's jobs everywhere. They are paying more. And some of that uh, paying more is because of the corporate consolidation. And, and so with this shortage of veterinarians, I mean, it's they're saying, well, let's throw some money at it so we can get more people. We can hire people. And then they're sort of looking at, well, I can go to a vet practice and make X or I can go work small animal and not do after hours and make Y. Or I could go just do emergency work and make a boatload of money. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, and so that's that's real. And I mean, when you've got student debt or you're just tired from being on call all the time or, you know, that's an option. Now, is there a med, an element? Is the grass always greener on the other side of the fence? Absolutely. And I think some people I know who have left for companion animal are like, yeah, it's not as great as I thought it would be. The Business of Practice podcast is brought to you by Care Credit. Care Credit keeps equine veterinarians at the heart of care by providing horse owners with simple, budget-friendly financing options. By bridging the gap between cost and care, Care Credit supports healthy financial relationships between veterinarians and their clients. It can help them move forward with care a horse needs whenever and wherever it's needed. While we're talking about some of this work-life balance, I mean, that is hard because the problem with horses is that we have veterinary practices that have been developed on the idea that the veterinarian will bring all of its equipment and drugs to your horse. So how do we get around that? So one of the things I think is on that is we're in a very fortunate position because the demand far exceeds the supply. And we are in a position as veterinarians to sort of start saying, this is how we're practicing. And if you don't like it, client, find another one. And then, oh, there isn't another one. So we're going to have to change. You know, I was talking to somebody about this uh, today. I was talking to one of our vets and we we're talking about telemedicine. And she, you know, I was like, how do we break this nut? And she's like, well, how do we break that, that puzzle when we started asking for payment at time of service? Um, you know, we have trained people to be a certain way and then we have to change it. And, and sometimes our fear of that change is, is greater than the effect. We anticipate the worst. Uh, we're veterinarians. We always anticipate the worst outcome because when bad, things go bad, it's never good. And so that's natural. But, you know, so, you know, uh, if you're in a position where your clientele has access to trailers, yes, they start hauling in, maybe do more in clinic appointments. Um, I also think, and this is, again, almost heresy in the vet profession, is to start saying no to people. Like, no, we're not taking on new clients. Or, you know, this there are certain clients that just have horrible, toxic behavior. They're just miserable. We all have them. And they're the ones that when a veterinarian looks at their schedule and knows they have to go there the following day, they're up all night going, what's going to happen? And that's the kind of stuff that pushes people out of practice because they're just dreading uh, people. And some of these people are just, they just behave horribly. So of course you, as a practice owner, I think we have to talk to them and just say, this is the behavior we expect. And if you can't do it, we can't service you. And uh, we did a bunch last guy. I mean, we got rid of one client who was probably our biggest billing client. 
and they were not nice human beings. And we tried, we thought maybe the one vet who was going there mainly, maybe it's just a, you know, it's just a, a personality clash. We rotated different vets in the barn and they all said the same thing. It was like, this is sucking any joy out of my professional life out of me. And so I just had to say, what do I want? Do I want happy vets who are going to be here a long time? Or do I want to have a customer that's just going to churn through vets? I'm like, and it was an obvious, easy answer. And nobody has come up to me this year going, I am so tired of clients. I mean, yeah, we have bad days, but there, there wasn't the overwhelming dread of, I hate going to this farm. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. And that's where you have to listen to your, your associates out in the field and even your office staff on how they're being treated. Yeah, we've started, we've introduced a new thing in my own practice and um, it's been two weeks. I've started it with our vets and it has been a wonderful thing. So we always talk about exit interviews. Um, when somebody is leaving, we do an exit interview. What could we have done differently? What happened? Blah, blah, blah. Well, by that time, literally the horse has left the barn. And so um, we started doing stay interviews. I mean, it's, it's not a new concept, but we just started doing it. And so it's five questions. And the first thing, what, first one is, um, what do you look forward to when you're driving to work? Second question is, what are you learning? Great insights, you know, uh, because the learning is, you know, if one of the vets says, you know, nothing, I'm, I'm kind of plateaued. All right. You know, one of the things that's fun about this profession is that we're always learning. There's great new things to learn. What an opportunity then to say, what would you like to learn? How can we make that happen? You know, the third and fourth questions are the first time I asked them, I sort of, oh, okay. And so the one is, why do you stay with us? And they're not expecting that. And the abruptness and, and let's be frank, the sheer honesty of the question, they answer honestly too. And so, you know, and so then you start to hear what's working, why, you know, and why they're staying with us. And then the fourth question is, when was the last time you thought about leaving? And they've all been very, well, I, I'm accept, presuming they've all been very honest uh, because several of them said, well, there was a situation three months ago that just, I was just so fed up or this happened. So they have talked about it. And boy, is it open doors to understanding um, what their challenges are. And then the, the fifth and final question is, is simply, what can we do to make your job better? So these are questions that really open up a dialogue. And so when we're talking about retaining staff, better to find out now what ails them than later on. Boy, that is, if every practice took that on, I think you could probably see the rate of people leaving. It won't stop. It'll never it just stop. It will, yeah. it will lower it. And you then have the power to uh, change the tide. If, there are, if there's a, a, a clinic-wide or a practice-wide problem, yeah, everybody, we all have our individual things and there's, we're all going through uh, well, what we're going through right now coming out of the pandemic and with the recession. And well, I hope it's not a recession, but inflation, what have you, it's, it's a really uh, uncertain time. And how often are you doing these stay interviews or how often are you going to? You said you just started them. Yeah, I want to start using them as check-in. We check in on a quarterly basis with everybody, like all support staff, even even more often if it's 
somebody that has a particular uh, challenge or they're starting a new endeavor, let's say they're trying or introducing to a new role. So lots of discussion. So taking the time in the day to check in with people, it doesn't have to be a formal sit down. It could be as you're passing in the hall or you're arriving together in the morning. It's just like, how are you doing? You know, um, is there anything going on at work that's that I should know about? Is there anything that we're doing or that the company's doing that is not allowing you to be the best that you can be? Simple questions, but I think um, depending on the trust level in the practice between management and staff, it may take some time for trust to develop. But if there is good trust, these are great conversations that can just happen spontaneously. Well, I can't, I won't say spontaneously. You have to initiate it, but you'll get a robust conversation out of it. And it just allows you to have a, a finger on the pulse and knowing what's going on. And we, you, you mentioned emergency duty earlier. Now, there are some yep. vets who just thrive on that. They just love it. Yep. And there's yep. others that would like to, they would give you their left index finger to never have to do another emergency colic call. So how do you balance this? I mean, there are emergencies in equine practice. So what yep. do you do? I think it really, a lot of it comes down to is how frequently are they going to be on call? You know, if it's one and two, that's tough. That, that, that's tough, you know, and I know there's uh, there may be people listening to this going, well, I did it for 30 years. So I'm like, great, that's yeah. you. But in general, that's tough. And when there are other options, and I think the, the generation now does not live to work. They work to live. And we have to respect that. And so if they want more uh, less on call, then I think this is where the next thing that we need in the profession is much more collaboration. We're moving towards that. So much more shared on call, what have you. And I think there's some great initiatives and there's some great groups doing that. So I, I think that's one aspect of it. And then the other aspect too is, you know, again, is where we go, how big is our call area? Is it too big? You know, are our clients decent? You know, when they show up there and will they actually listen to the veterinarian? Are they respectful? Or the vet's showing up and it's, you know, you're a tool to put sutures into a, a cut. I mean, we, you and I both have talked to other veterinarians who have done different types of emergency cooperatives, individual veterinarians, just yep. with people that they're competing against in yep. their regions. And they have managed to make these work. How do you make something like that work? Uh, trust and respect. And I think taking the word competitors out of the vocabulary, we're not competing anymore. There's, there, there's, it's not like we compete when there's much more of us than there is demand. And we're all trying to make a, a book of business. That's not the problem anymore. We're collaborators, we're colleagues. And so competition should just be, we until the situation changes, we're not competitors right now. So yeah, we need to work together for the sake of our own practices, but honestly, for the sake of our profession. Once you get a veterinarian hired, so you've got a new person that comes in and you've gone through the whole process. You think they're a good fit with your your not only your practice clients, but your practice ethics and, and personality. Why is it so hard to keep them? Uh, and not just yeah. you, I'm talking about the industry as a whole. Yeah, no, 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 I know. And I think part of it is, is, well, that's a tough question. And I'm just trying to think of situations where it hasn't worked out. 
I think for one thing, so you made the assumption that they're a good fit for your culture, um, ethical, you know, your ethics, your values, what have you, your culture, your practice personality. But are we selecting the right people in terms of capabilities? Um, it's hard to judge resiliency when you're, when you're, um, interviewing somebody, you know, it's not like you're going to make a real life situation. I'm just, here, here's a horse that's choking for two hours. Go and deal with it. You know, that's, that's not, it's hard. Um, but I think um, one of the things we don't do enough of is train and support them in their initial steps. It's too much. We're overwhelmed by work. Here's your pager, um, cell phone, go out and start working. You know what? I always say you got to take the time. These are valuable resources. You've got to nurture them. You've got to make you've got to set them up for success. Nobody likes to be in a new environment and they're scrambling and they don't know what they're doing. They don't know how to bill. They're worried about making mistakes. Um, so, you know, I tell all of our new vets, for example, I don't care if you don't bill a dime for the first couple months, really the first couple months. I want you to go around hang out with the vets, learn our systems, learn how we communicate with clients, learn how we communicate with each other, um, get, get to know the clients, let the clients know you. So when you do show up at 10 o'clock at night to deal with a call, if they're not going, who's this stranger? They already know you. So we take the time. It's an investment. And I know everybody's like, well, I'm dying. I'm frantic. Well, you've been dying and frantic for the last how many periods of time. Um, and it's really as us just like a start saying no so reduce your caseload or just realize it's going to take a little bit longer it's not pleasant it's not comfortable yeah. it's going to take a little bit longer that's a that's a really good point so i'm going to ask you just to kind of think back on our conversation today what do you think are, are the key points if somebody came to you and said gosh mike i I'm really struggling to try and find a vet to come into my practice. What are you going to say? So we're talking about attracting a vet and I've had a few discussions recently. And as veterinarians, when we put job ads out, we love talking about the equipment we have and, and that's, fine, but nobody really goes to work for a, a place because you have a certain type of DR or ultrasound. No, you got to start showing off who you are as a practice. Uh, it's a particular challenge for some rural areas. All right, what are the what are the positives? So basically, don't even barely talk about the practice other than, yeah, we're great. We have a great culture. Um, you know, we allow you to be who you want to be. But, you know, start talking about the benefits of the area. Make it fun. So if you're in an area that, you know, sort of has this kind of stigma of uh, who would want to work there, make it funny. Make it, you know, like you want to catch attention. You don't want somebody to just go through the job ads and go, I don't want to go live in that state. You know what? We all, every one of us has misperceptions about different parts of the country. Um and then you find people that are like, I would never thought that we, you would live there. And they're like, yeah, it's great. It's amazing. You know what? People are people. We're fine all over the place. So let's start showing our personalities. I, one vet I know that I, I, I've, uh, I'm quite fond of what they do is, and, you know, the owner of the, you know, the practice started making his own video. Instead of having a text ad, he just did a video of him talking about it, you know, have interviews or have a quick little video of some of your staff members talking about it, uh, maybe some of your other vets talking about it, you know, let's, 
uh, we, uh, you know, anything that you're doing is you're, you, you, you've got to show that you're different or distinctive. Um, and so just having that typical want that wanted great lifestyle, competitive salary, competitive wages, competitive benefits. No, no, no. That's, we, it, everybody says that. And is there anything else on the retention side? So that's the attraction side. Is there anything on the retention side just as a, a closing thought? I don't think we can ask for feedback and check in enough with our staff. Like just it's busy times of the year. It doesn't still stop. Just go. How is it when somebody says they want a day off? They're tired. Say, absolutely. Please take it. Don't have any silent judgment. Go to your staff and say, you know, I noticed that you're short of vacation days. You know, we've got a few more months left in the year. Are you going to take all of them? I want you to take all of them. You know, show the staff that you really care about them and what they're going through. Um, that pays huge dividends. Yeah. Put That's yourself in their shoes and what they're going through um, and not look at them through the lens of somebody who's been in practice of 10, 20 years, 30, whatever years and all the hardships you've gone through. Um, it's different. Yeah, I heard of uh, one practice that they have a hard and set rule that if you miss more than X number of days per year, um, doesn't matter what the cause is, that you lose benefits. Okay, well, you've got still got COVID. You still got parents with kids. Yeah. You've got, you know, people that just need a little time off. So basically, it's they are losing staff because they set this hard and fast rule. And it was probably set because somebody was taking advantage of days off, but that has to be handled individually. Absolutely. hundred percent. No, yeah, I, yeah, I'm, we can't do that anymore. Like we just can't, you know, it has to be the opposite of like, Hey, you're having a hard time. You're a single mom. What can we do to help you? You know, yeah. I was talking to some of our, our receptionists and, you know, we have a great team and I'm like, okay, you live far. You're driving. Some of you are driving 45 minutes to get here one way. The price of fuel. I don't necessarily I can't afford to give you the raise that you need to in this environment. But you know what? As a receptionist, if we could figure out our system, getting back to technology where you can work a day at home. Like one person was saying, if I can work a day at home, uh, um, excuse me, two days at home every week. I'm going to save $200 a month. Yeah. That's over $2,400 a year, which is over a dollar an hour raise. And yeah. you know what? We, we started like, how do we make this work? Can we make this work? I mean, that's, that's a great idea. And I'm sure that other people are, haven't even thought about that. You know, that it, 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 there are some jobs that can be done from home. Yep. Maybe yep. not every day, like you said, but even one day a week is sometimes Absolutely. enough. Yep. To make it happen. Yep. So, okay. Any final words? I mean, we could talk about this all day long. This is such a crisis, and it's it's something that requires the leadership, the practice owners, yep. to sit down and have a change of heart and mind and practice. Yep. So, any last thoughts? No, I, I I think we're all realizing it. I know the AAP is putting together the sustainability committee. Um, we're aware of it. I, I My last thought is it's great that our professional bodies are looking for solutions, but really the solution comes within us. 
in how we approach this. Uh, it's going to take creativity. It's going to take new ways of doing things. It's going to take a lot of looking in the mirror and going, how much am I as a practice owner, manager, coworker, what have you, part of the problem and looking at different ways of doing things. Thank you, Dr. Pownell. I always enjoy having you on the podcast and we really appreciate our sponsor, Care Credit, letting us have this opportunity to talk about these critical issues in our industry. And we invite our listeners, make sure to go back and listen to other The Business of Practice podcasts for really good tips from industry experts like Dr. Pownell. And if you have any questions or suggestions, you can send an email to me at kbrown, that's the letter K Brown at equinenetwork.com. The Business of Practice podcast is a production of the Equine Podcast Network, an entity of the Equine Network, LLC. Mm-hmm.